0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Laila Abolela. She is the author of four novels, a collection of short stories, and several radio plays. Her novels include The Translator, Minaret, Lyrics Alley, and The Kindness of Enemies. Abu Layla grew up in Khartoum, Sudan, and now lives in Aberdeen, Scotland. She writes about being a cultural outsider, Islam, Sufism, history, identity, and political issues. We began by discussing the plot of her latest novel.
1: The Kindness of Enemies is is set in two time periods. Uh, One of them is present-day Scotland, uh, where we follow the life of a, a researcher who um, is half Sudanese, half uh, Russian, and she's interested in the life of Imam Shamil, who's a 19th century uh, warrior who um, fought a resistance against Russian imperial expansion and uh, so the novel goes back and forth between her life in the present and his life in the 19th uh, century her 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 life is not very particularly exciting except that uh, her favorite um, student uh, gets arrested uh, on terrorism charges while she's uh, visiting his home where she's staying because she gets stuck in the snow. But most of the action actually in the book takes place in the 19th century. And that follows how Imam Shamil's uh, eight-year-old son was kidnapped for him from him by the Russians. And he grew up away from him uh, in the palace of the Tsar of Russia as the Tsar's um, godson. And so Imam Shamil tries very hard to bring him back. And he's unable to do that until he kidnaps a a Georgian princess with her children and he exchanges her for his uh, son.
0: How did you, you know, alight on this plot? What was the impetus for you to write about this? Um, What was your inspiration?
1: Well, my inspiration was uh, the um, Imam Shamil himself. And uh, I was really touched by how he lost his son the fact that his son got kidnapped at such a young age, and uh, and and how the son grew up so far away from him, uh, uh, with, under a completely different uh, culture, uh, and then uh, the son facing the the need to return to his father.
0: And did you have any questions that were nagging at you that you wanted to explore? Because obviously, this is a fictional account. Um, in terms of the emotions, or the setting, or what you know, what was really exciting for you to dive into?
1: Well, it was the sense of of being torn away from you know your where you grew up, and and also the f- the, the father's feeling that that his son is being brought up differently than him, and uh, and and how he's kind of lost him physically, not only physically but also. Uh, emotionally and uh, spiritually and and that kind of uh, touched a nerve with me because of course I I left Sudan when I was in my 20s and I and I moved to Scotland and uh, it was a big big move for for me and, and I, I kind of never got over it in a way and a lot of my writing explores this Idea of 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 moving from one place to another or, and one culture to another and 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 still having a sense of being of belonging to both uh, places.
0: So his son was um, Jamal al Din, and he was kidnapped at eight years old, and he grew up in this palace of the Tsar. and it was a very different life when you um, went between how you saw how Shamil and his wives lived and then Jamal al-Din because it was really a life of austerity with the Sufis and with the Russians it was sophistication and Jamal al-Din because he was so young when he was kidnapped and grew up in the Tsar, and he was loved there he was exposed to arts and culture and dance and women and good food and all these things and when, you know, later, when he was an adult, and when Shamil kidnapped Anna, as part part in part to get his son back, his son kind of felt like he didn't belong anywhere. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, his son didn't feel like he belonged anywhere. It's a sharp, sharp contrast. I mean, uh, Shamil and his family live up in the mountains. It's very austere. It's all that even the houses are made of stone. Uh, they don't have furniture. They just sit on the ground. The food is very basic. You know, there's no such thing as entertainment. And basically his son, his son, Jamal Azdeen was growing up in a world which um, I re- I used um, Anna Karenina, Tolstoy's to novel, to re- to research it because that was the same time period. So uh, it's a huge uh, difference. You know, there's, as you say, there's balls, there's, you know, it's a, really a life of grandeur. And he was an officer in the Russian army, uh, Jamal and and he was, uh, you know, the godson of the, of the Tsar. So there was a lot of, uh, he lived a life of, of privileges. And there was the horse racing and there was the ice skating and there was, the, you know, the operas. And so um, all these things. Uh, were very much in uh, in sharp contrast to, to the life he had he had grown up with.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Laila Abolela, author of The Kindness of Enemies. So you also had another example of a similar situation where um, you have a foreigner in this land, and that's with Anna. So... As the war went on, and it's all about land and territory and who's going to get, you know, what for their people, um, when Shamil was sort of at wit's end with trying to get his son back and and needing some advantages in the war against the Russians, he kid kidnaps Anna and Georgia and brings her back to where he lives. And she's there for, I think, nine months? Yeah. When she's there... He does try to treat her nicely, tries to treat her as he does his other wives. Can you talk about her role in this book and her experience there?
1: She's quite a main character uh, for me. Her journey is very traumatic, you know, being kidnapped from her home. She's carrying a little, she's carrying a baby and she's got her son with her. And then they're driven up the mountains and uh, that is quite horrific. And it was very vivid for me, this journey up the mountain. And I hope it came out. It, it reads as, as vividly as, as it is it was in my head, you know. And then when she gets up to, to the mountain, she's told that she's not, you know, the, the usual prisoner of war. Instead, she's going to be housed with, in Imam Shamil's own personal, um, you know, compound with his wives. you know, one of them doesn't like her, but one, but the other two do. And so she has, you know, different relationships with, with the different uh, women. And quite a lot of part of the book is that, is her kind of bonding with these women whom she would never have met usually in her social circumstances, you know, and the fact that they do become uh, friendly uh, to, to, towards each other and they do learn Uh, from from each other so that, you know, uh, she's a changed person after this um, experience.
0: And were you brought up Muslim?
1: I was brought up Muslim and I'm a practicing Muslim myself. And I always try, you know, in my writing to to bring Islam into the writing that I'm writing because, um, I'm very conscious, um, when I'm reading, I mean, I love, um, uh, English uh, literature and, uh, and, and when I, when I read English literature, I'm aware very much that it is very much influenced by Christianity. So, um, so as you know, as an African and as a uh, I'm, a, you know, other, you know, African writers have spoken of of how the, they they grow up as children reading books from the West, and they they feel the cultural differences. How you know the, the the characters are eating strawberries, for example, and and you, as a child growing up in Africa, you have no idea what a strawberry is. Uh, so I I feel that way as well. But then in addition, I've also been very conscious. Of um, of how Christianity is pervasive in English literature. Huge huge differences. You know, growing up as a as a Muslim. One uh, for example, one of my favorite novels is Jane Eyre. And uh, and of course in 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 Jane Eyre the the um, the the, the problem or the the um, you know the the, the obstacle between um, Mr Rochester and Jane getting married is the fact that Mr Rochester is secretly married uh, to them to Bertha you know the the madwoman in, in the attic and uh, he can't get a divorce from her and so of course as a reader I, I'm I'm totally you know behind Jane and I'm totally um, Uh, you know, immersed in her conflict. But also a part of me as a Muslim, I think, well, why can't he? He can, under, under, for example, Sharia law, he could very well divorce uh, Bertha and marry Jane, or he could marry both of them. Uh, at the same at the same time, so you, you you then can't help your your brain can't help thinking that as you are reading. If I'm reading Jane Austen, for example, I'm conscious that the laws of inheritance are very different in Muslim Sharia law, which gives women the right of inheritance. So a lot of the plots in in Jane Austen's novels, um, you know, revolve around the fact that these daughters don't inherit their father, or that or that. Um, uh, or that the inheritance isn't divided equally between uh, the different sons like the firstborn son gets a, a bigger share of inheritance and in Islam all the, the, you know that all the sons get um, an equal share and all and the daughters get um, an, an, an equal share as well so uh, and the wife uh, you know gets uh, gets a share as well so um, you know, that's how I see, that's how I see um, uh, um, English, English literature. And so when I'm, when I write, when I'm writing myself, I I bring in, you know, this, this culture, my own culture into it. And I'm, I'm very conscious of, of, of doing that.
0: I mean, you did have to take a hard look at Islam and Christianity. I'm just wondering if as you were going between islam and christianity or even highlighting some of the difficult parts of islam if that if that was hard
1: uh, well not 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 as hard i mean the same for any other writer who for them their own culture or their own you know um religious culture is just part of their life part of their up, up, upbringing it's not hard uh, it's just to me, this is um, is it, is just a natural, and it's just um, you know, I think I think what is hard is 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 keeping it natural, keeping it. Being not self-conscious that the reader is different or that the, or, the, or that the reader has might have prejudices, for example, against Islam or, or so on. I have to not be defensive. I have to not be looking over my shoulder when I'm writing. You know, I have to be not con- consistently answering back defending or apologizing or, you know, uh, justifying. I have to make the story natural within its its natural context. You know, the way Christian writers wrote without even feeling that, without a self-consciousness, that I don't think Charlotte Bronte, who was a practicing Christian, for example, felt a kind of self-consciousness about being, being a Christian. And yet there's a lot of, of Christianity in, in, in Jane, in Jane Eyre. Um, um,
0: so that's, that's,
1: um, how I feel about it. Yeah.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Laila Abulela, author of The Kindness of Enemies. So one of the things that tied the the older story of Shamil with the modern day story was a sword. So he had this famous sword that he had that this family. So your narrator is Natasha, that she that Oz, her student, and his mom Malek own. Can you talk about the sword? Uh, yeah, the
1: sword is what brings Natasha to visit Malek in the first place. So that's really much how the novel starts with her as this lecturer being uh, gi- giving a, she gives a talk about imam shamil who's her you know the the subject of her research and then her her student one of her her favorite student tells her that i'm actually that he's actually descended from imam, Sham, imam shamil and that his mom has the sword at home and would she like to come and see the sword and so she does come and, and see the the sword uh, at home and and one of the the things that happened while she's visiting is that, and she's stuck there for, you know, two days because of of a, of a snowfall. Is that um, this this student who's called Oz? Actually, his real his real name is Osama, but he prefers to be called Oz, and he he uh, he uses the sword. Um, he builds snowmen and and chops off their heads with with the, with his sword and 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 his mom says to him, "This is a very ancient short sword. Why why are you disrespecting it?" And this is kind of for me was sort of symbolic of uh, this whole um, way that um, that that jihad is now has become completely twisted and and used by terrorists to justify you know their 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 terror and the injustice that they do and then they call it jihad in the name of islam but actually the the jihad the real the jihad was the kind that was practiced by imam shamil in the sense that it was in self-defense that it had rules that it did that it didn't you know um it wasn't targeting civilians, it wasn't it wasn't about destruction, it was about it was about defense and it also uh, at the end of his life uh, after Imam Shamal after practicing jihad and fighting the Russians for for many, many years, he surrendered. He didn't blow himself up. he didn't commit suicide. he surrendered to the Russians. he, he handed in his sword. he, he was um, taken to exile, he lived in exile in Moscow and and when he came into contact with russian culture he ex- he was admiring of, of of the russians you know he 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 admired their compassion he admired the technology that they had he admired you know russian culture he was able to make his um, his his peace with with his enemies you know so so real real jihad has um, uh, you know ha- it, it like you know warf- war like mo- you know modern warfare has you know guidelines and has restraints and has res- restrictions and it, it it has an end as well it it can it ends in it in, in peace there can be peace there can be uh, reconciliation but what we see nowadays now with with the terrorism that it doesn't it doesn't have an end and it, and it's, it's 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 you know it's it's vindictive it's you know it just goes on and on and and it involves the 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 suicide Bombing, which is completely alien to Islam and just has no, is no, it's not based on, on 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 Islamic teaching at all.
0: As we learn more about the story of Oz and Natasha, it turns out that Oz was doing some research about the sword and downloaded some Al Qaeda book. And so he was arrested um, and held in jail for a few weeks and being interrogated to see if he was a terrorist. And eventually he was let out. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about his character and what happened to him.
1: Yes, so he downloads. He's he's researching this idea of weapons uh, used for uh, for jihad, and he he downloads this Al Qaeda manual, and and then that gets him uh, arrest arrested, and this actually happened. I read about it in the newspaper. Uh, it is actually a case that did take place a couple of years ago, and a student was uh, was arrested and then and then um, you know released after. Um, a week. Um, and also, uh, the, there is now, um, a, under counterterrorism uh, policy here in, in the, in, in the United Kingdom, um, you know, uh, lecturers, university lecturers are supposed to report on, the, on, on students who they feel are vulnerable to radicalization. And this has been going on now for some time. And the, part of the, the, what the, the, the novel explores is how uh, Natasha, who is herself uh, a Muslim, though she's not a, a practicing Muslim, you know, that she, as an outsider, because she's, you know, half half African, uh, she volunteers to to um, report these students or to write reports about vulnerable uh, students deemed vulnerable to radicalization so she does um do the training course and that she does um you know write reports about 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 the students so um in a way yes this this part of the novel is a is a kind of a comment on 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 this um on what is happening now in, in in the uk and actually this uh, this counterterrorism uh, strategy, of uh, called, which is called "prevent" here in the UK, uh, it's come under a lot of criticism uh, because it targets the, the Muslim community specifically, and it asks and, and, and teachers feel that they are, you know, spying on their on on their students. Uh, so it's been under, you know, um, heavily criticized here in here in the in the UK. And I wanted to explore how uh, the, the the lecture herself or himself could be could be a Muslim. It's not a Muslim reporting on another Muslim. It's not really a, an us and, and, and them, them situ, a situation. So it beca- it becomes more
0: uh, it, in, intriguing. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Laila Abulela, author of The Kindness of Enemies. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes, I've got uh,
1: Anita Desai. This is her um, novel, Fasting uh, Feasting. This is actually the first, very first uh, paragraph. And it says, um, on the veranda overlooking the garden, the drive and the gate, they sit together on the creaking sofa swing, suspended from its iron frame dangling their legs so that the slippers on their feet hang loose. Before them, a low round table is covered with a faded cloth, embroidered in the wa- in the centre with flowers. Behind them, a pedestal fan blows warm air at the back of their head and necks. The cane mats, which hang from the arches of the veranda to keep out the sun and dust, are rolled up now. Pigeons sit upon the rolls, conversing tenderly, picking at ticks fluttering. Pigeon droppings splatter the stone tiles below, and feathers float torpidly through the air. The parents sit rhythmically, swinging back and forth. They could be asleep, dozing. Their eyes are hooded, but sometimes they speak. So this is Anita Desai's really, you know, my one of my favorite writers, and. Um, I love her descriptions of of India and I love her, you know, the way she writes about family life and the way she writes about women's lives. Very, very subtle, you know, very, very gentle, but a lot of, you know, a lot of um, cleverness and and depth. I feel that she sort of speaks to me because in interviews um, she spoke about how, um, you know, she had four children and um, and she just used to write in, in you know uh, all by herself in, in in while the children were at school and that that writing was a private uh, world to her and that she didn't know any other writers and that when she moved you know when she you know she moved in social circles that didn't in, include any writers and she would also would she would always be thinking of the writing you know it would be in her head all the time and I can very much relate to that because I also, you know, move in circles where there aren't any writers. And, um, and, and, and I also, you know, have children and I also write, you know, I used to write when, when they were at, the, at school. And um, of course, when, and as Anita say says in her time, there wasn't you know, all the, the conferences and the, the, the festivals and the, you know, the the kind of things that writers go to nowadays, the workshops and the festivals and, um, and all the activity that's going on online. Um, so that now I, I do go, I travel a lot to writers festivals and I do, you know, I'm online, you know, catching the news about other writers and so on. So I I do have an inter- inter- interaction with 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 other li- writers, but most of the time it is, as she says, very sort of um, very private and very much um, you know at, uh, close to the domestic sort of uh, setting.
0: Can you read something you wrote that was challenging or tricky or changed a lot from the first draft?
1: I have a story that changed a lot from the first draft. Um, even the title changed. The title was at first called Tear Gas, and it ended up being uh, Missing Out. And it was published in Granta magazine, uh, actually the first story in the, in the edition. So I was very excited about, about that. And uh, it, the, the change was actually that I flipped the, op- the, the opening um, into and made it the ending, so, uh, in the original draft, um, the, the story starts like this. Uh, she held the day up with pegs, five pegs, and when she was away, morning billowed into afternoon, into night and marked. When she was away, Majdi no longer found her prayer mat folded on the bedroom's floor. The old tobe she used for praying dropped over it in a coiled heap. She had put them away in her side of the cupboard folded them neatly on top of each other to await her, retar- her return. So this is how the, the, the story was in the first draft. And then um, after a couple of pages, uh, no, actually, actually after three pages, um, there is a paragraph, and then uh, the third sentence in that paragraph became the first became the beginning of the story as it was published. So, um, the paragraph in the original first draft read, A bruised ego did not suit Majdi. Uh, Instead of humbling him, it made him sour, made him anxious. In his first term in London, he wrote letters home, announcing that he would not make it, threatening that he would give up and return. And so this... when I I read over the first draft I felt that there was suddenly a lot of energy in that sentence and so I that became the first uh, that that became the beginning of um, um, the story as it was published so the final draft starts off with in his first term at college in London Majdi wrote letters home announcing that he would not make it threatening that he would give up and return to call him on the phone, his mother made several trips to the central post office in Khartoum, and so on. Um, and then the the first paragraph in the original be- comes at the very, very end of the story, and this is actually quite a longer story. It became the last uh, few lines where he's reflecting on his wife having actually left him and went back home. And he says, yeah, Samra had folded her prayer mat. The floor looked strangely larger. Samra had folded her prayer mat and put it away in her side of the cupboard. She had not needed to take it with her. In Khartoum, there were plenty of other mats, mats with worn faded patches in those places where people pressed their foreheads and stood with wet feet. Majdi opened the cupboard and touched the smooth velvet material. It stirred in him a childish sense of exclusion, of being left out, like a ple- pleasure he had denied himself and now forgotten the reasons why. She had held the day up with pegs, not only her day but his day too. Five pegs, and now morning billowed into afternoon into night, unmarked. Where do you write? I write in my in my study. I have a I have a study, um, in 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 our house and um, it's facing the north. So that's good because um, it means that in um, summer there isn't too much light because uh, sometimes too much sunshine, you know, gives me headaches and things. So this room is quite dark. And uh, and also, it's um, it's quite small, so it's easy to keep warm in the winter. So it it works very nicely, winter and summer. <laughs> so it's dark and small.
0: <laughs> what do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I go to the gym because I had a lot of strain on my shoulders and neck from the from the computer um, many many years ago and uh, it was really it panicked me because i couldn't uh, there was a time when i couldn't type at all and so i i i've got into this idea of fitness and keeping fit and so i i go to the gym uh, four times a week now
0: who do you show your work to first to get feedback
1: i show it to to my husband who's my he he's my first reader and he gives me back uh, good feedback and uh, and also because we, we grew up in the same, we grew up in, in, in Sudan, in the same neighborhood. Uh, he also jogs my memories sometimes when, uh, you know, I'm writing about something and he remembers it and, and he says, and then also there's that and the other. And, and, and so that helps me uh, with my writing.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: Ah, that's very, very hard. I think it's hard. Um, it doesn't get easier. Um, I think I deal with it by um, reminding myself that it's not personal.
0: And what is your favorite word? My favorite
1: word is inevitable, and and I like fiction be- because of that because it shows that so strongly how uh, things uh, you know everything you see um, it it just it's not just random it's actually there's a lot behind it and it, and and that has built up to this particular moment uh, a lot of past that has built up to this particular uh, moment and so how it is if you're if you're in the know if you know how things are going then things will make sense to you and that you will feel that they are inevitable
0: been listening to first draft a dialogue on writing produced at aspen public radio my guest who joined me via skype was lila abolela author of the kindness of enemies you can follow first draft on facebook just look for first draft a dialogue on writing and click like and on twitter at first draft apr you can email me at first at gmail.com the theme music for first draft was produced and performed by murph mahaffey i'm mitzi rapkin thanks for listening